You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. I am John Arico here as always with Ryan Goldfarb. It's good to be back after yet another long hiatus. It's been a long hiatus. Uh, we accomplished a lot in that hiatus. I had a child and Ryan got married. So I wouldn't say that it was, uh, you know, we also were working very a lot on our <laughs> projects. So we were, we we're just not recording the podcast. But now that it's December, we're getting back into a rhythm. We have a bunch of amazing guests that are coming up, although most of them don't know that they'll be on the show. So <laughs> I guess we'll see how that works out. But we have a bunch of guests that are planned. Um, but today in this episode, we specifically want to talk about a new project that Ryan and I have undertaken. Uh, very unlike our other projects throughout Atlantic City and throughout New Jersey and Connecticut, it is a 48-unit condominium building called La Renaissance. And we're going to be diving deep into why we bought it, what are the challenges that we face, the state of the building when we found it, what we're going to be doing with it, uh, and how we're going to get there. So without further ado, shall we dive in? Let's do it. So the, the Renaissance is a 48-unit condominium building, as I said, located in Atlantic City. It's on Kentucky Avenue. So for those of you that are familiar with Atlantic City, it's um, not too far from the Orange Loop. I guess you could argue that it is kind of part of the expanded Orange Loop. Orange Loop adjacent, as we like to call it. Orange Loop adjacent. That's right. Um, it's uh, not directly on the boardwalk, but it's as close as you can probably get to the boardwalk uh, without being kind of a storefront um uh, it, you know, shop. It is connected to the boardwalk. It's connected to the boardwalk. There's a board. There's a like a bridge where our main entrance is located on that connects directly to the boardwalk. Right. So again, you could call it boardwalk adjacent. A boardwalk. <laughs> it's boardwalk adjacent in many respects. Yeah. That's the title of this episode. Adjacent. <laughs> um, we the the building itself was built uh, in the early 1980s. It replaces a. Um, a famous hotel whose name I have just immediately forgotten, even though five minutes ago I knew what it was and was going to say the name of it. Uh, maybe Ryan can look it up while we're talking. But it, it replaces a historic hotel that used to be on the site. That hotel was demolished in the 70s. And in its place was built this building, uh, a parking lot behind it, and some vacant land. Um, it is adjacent uh, or almost adjacent to the Madison Hotel, uh, which is actually under the same ownership as the Renaissance. So the the building itself, um, to sort of set the stage, it was built in the 80s. It was operated, I think, variously as condos and timeshares. Ryan, do you know if it was ever actually condos? My understanding was, I'm not sure if this was upon its initial construction or at some point down the line, but I believe it was attempted as a condo it was attempted to be a condo conversion or a condo outsale which is why all of the deeds are as condos uh they it, it was left as a fractured condominium and ultimately was just uh, operated as a timeshare right. um, as a result of the inability to sell out all the units right so operated as a timeshare uh i think most recently it was you know just a, a timeshare uh, in, in every respect, I believe it's been the timeshare itself sort of went bust. I want to say at least seven years ago. Is that right? Maybe something like four to seven years ago. Yeah. I've, I've uh, heard a bunch of different stories or a bunch of different, um, versions of the story, but if there are any Atlantic city experts out there who know more about the history of this building and this site, we yeah. are all ears. I think it's been abandoned ever since Ryan and I had started working in Atlantic City. I'm right. quite sure about that. It was sold at an auction, um, I want to say probably four years ago. And the owner of that, uh, the, the winner of the auction, uh, bought it, I guess, with an eye towards reopening it immediately. So 
we're, we're going to go into some specifics about, you know, the, the, the building and, and, you know, kind of the, the owner and all that. Um, I don't want to uh, say necessarily bad things about the owner per se. So let me just caveat it with that. But the, the owner had bought the building, uh, out of auction. Uh, the stories that we had heard is that the owner had basically set up shop on the boardwalk, you know, right next to the building with a sign that said, you know, buy these condominiums, like put in your down payment. Uh, when the condominium building itself, the, the state of the building was that since it had been abandoned for multiple years prior to his ownership, there was no working heat. Uh, there was no water service. There was no gas service. The roof was leaking. Um, all of the units were, were in disrepair. Just sort of basic functions of the building were not operational when he bought it. And his solution to solve that problem was not to take kind of like a holistic approach and, you know, solving like the most pressing issues first, but to begin, uh, painting the units, redoing some of the kitchens and stuff like that. So you can imagine the site where it's like, you know, the hallway itself has, you know, missing ceiling tiles and leaking and, no lights and no flooring, but the, the rooms themselves are being, you know, painted and granite countertops are coming in and things like that to sort of get the individual units ready for, for occupancy. So it's dissimilar to how I would assume most people would approach, um, renovating a building of that, uh, of that magnitude. Um, when we ultimately found the building, uh, I would say it had deteriorated, uh, notably from probably even the time where the current owner, the, the previous owner had bought it. So the, the roof was very bad, uh, leaking in multiple places. Of course, it still is leaking, because uh, <clears throat> we bought it a few months ago. Uh, the roof was leaking multiple places, no flooring, um, basically no utilities except some electrical service was on in some rooms and some common areas. One, one thing I'll point out is there was a lot of flooring. It just wasn't installed. <clears throat> That's right. So there was... <laughs> boxes and boxes and boxes. Yeah. The, the previous owner had, I guess, attempted to, um, to furnish the building or something like that. And so he had acquired a bunch of furniture from old casinos uh, through this guy that everyone in Atlantic City knows that uh, collects furniture from casinos and then resells them. Um, tons of flooring, as Ryan mentioned. Um, beds sheets, uh, TVs, appliances, TVs, appliances, just random stuff that was clogging kind of every, you know, hallway door artery of the building. Um, and that's how, that's how the building was when we first saw it and we were interested in, in buying it. Um, do you want to talk Ryan a little bit about the process of buying it? Because I feel like that itself is a little bit of a lesson in how buying big buildings, uh, can be different from buying, you know, just a single house. So, the, the, you know, the, the theme of this episode, I think we're going to get into is, um, as Ryan aptly titled it, big, big buildings, big lessons. So big buildings, big problems, big buildings, big problems. Yeah. Well, big buildings, big solutions. I like that. So Liberty Hudson solutions. There you go. Um, but yes, Ryan, do you want to discuss that process a bit? Sure. Uh, th- well, I guess there are a few different angles we can take to this. Um, I would say one thing that was unique to this building that created a somewhat more complex process to acquiring it, um, which is not, I would say, not emblematic of many buildings of the size, was that in addition to being a 48-unit building, which itself is just a large asset, it was a 48-unit condo building, which means that when we took took ownership to it and had to go through the due diligence process, the title process entailed running title on I guess 49 separate parcels because there's there's one or 49 separate I guess deeds I don't know how you describe it block and lots yeah blocks and and lots and and the reason it's 49 is because there's one for each unit which is 48 and then there's one master deed that um, runs the you know governs the entire building in the land common spaces yeah so that in and of itself was would be added complexity. Um, but beyond that, there were, uh, John can attest to this better than I can because he was more involved in this process, but there were a number of nuances to navigate that because the prior owner had never actually obtained title insurance. So he didn't have an active title policy which ordinarily works to the buyer's benefit because it gives the buyer's title company a way to either indemnify themselves of some risks or 
ensure that some of the risks that they may have been concerned about from a title standpoint were already addressed. So if he bought it four years ago and he had title insurance on it, then his title policy would have essentially covered everything from four years ago back to, you know, the beginning of time or the beginning of this um, piece of land's existence. Yeah. It's sort of insane to buy anything uh, through a, you know, arm's length transaction without having title insurance. I suppose I could imagine there are some scenarios in which it's, okay to not get title insurance. Um, uh, you know, and certainly if you're kind of quit claiming the property between entities or between family members or something like that, uh, title insurance wouldn't necessarily be called for. But in this specific case, because he was buying it out of, a, um, you know, this auction, and I don't know if that was, I don't know if there was a formal bankruptcy filed. I don't know exactly what you know, had happened to result in the auction, but to add additional color, not only were there 49 separate, you know, call it parcels, block and lots, whatever, um, each of those, uh, individual, you know, units had been sold multiple times through the timeshare process. So when you buy a timeshare, at least in this case, you bought a timeshare, you're actually buying a property interest, like a, uh, you had a deed. So I don't know that the total number of deeds that were uh, that were actually, you know, involved in this, but it was something on the order of thousands. I mean, I think it was like 7,000 or 9,000 or something like that. So the title process, when he bought it, uh, I'd heard it took over a year just to, just to find all of those deeds, just to clear all of the issues that, uh, you know, amounted then. And then at the end of the day, he ultimately didn't get title insurance because I, I guess he claims it was an oversight or, or someone had messed up or something like that. Luckily, that is, that, that is an egregious oversight. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, luckily that, you know, there were no title issues because they had spent a year clearing all the issues before he bought the building. But yes, so that was one major issue. I've never encountered that before. And luckily we found the title agent that had done all of the work who was able to kind of wrap everything up for us, you know, in a matter of a month or something like that. But if we had to start from scratch, it would have been another 12 months, I think, just to just to close. Yeah. Um, and then once we actually closed on the building, uh, that was when I would say the lion's share of the issues and lessons really started. I, yeah, I would say too, to- before closing, you know, there, there was stuff, for example, you know, we had to deal with... Uh, there were liens that the prior owner had, you know, shall we say acquired uh, due right. to his lack of payment of uh, contractors and everywhere else. And that's not completely uncommon in, you know, the single family or residential context. But in this case, it was just magnified because he had had um, a lot of work done in the building that he hadn't ultimately paid for. Right. Yeah. To, to put it in perspective. Yeah. To put it in perspective, these liens were, you know, it wasn't a $5,000 lien for, you know, a, a incidental like home repair. It was fifty or a hundred thousand dollar liens for, you know, big ticket items like a sprinkler system or an elevator right. elevator work or fire Con- alarm system. Or contractors that, that there weren't actually they hadn't actually put liens in the property, but still hadn't been paid. Right, which uh, would have subjected us to a potential lien. Right, there was there was a, the biggest issue, I guess, was the um, the fire marshal of Atlantic City had a lot of issues with the building because the owner hadn't um, ever really had a fire or maybe they'd had a fire inspection, they'd failed the inspection uh, and then, did you know, nothing didn't, to remedy. did nothing to remediate that. And so obviously the building's vacant. So there are things that the owner could have done to indicate the building was vacant and therefore didn't need to comply with fire safety issues. But, you know, he had done some work on the fire suppression system, the sprinkler system, the alarm system. We'll get into that um, as it means for us later. But, you know, that essentially the, the, the owner was receiving a, an email from the fire marshal, you know, like every week saying, hey, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Threatening fines, you know, of hundreds of dollars per day for noncompliance. So one of the first things that we had to do when we bought it was resolve those issues. But that was all the the lead up to the actual closing of the building. One thing that uh, we didn't do, uh, and you know, you'll know, you notice that we did mention is we didn't do a home inspection. And that's not because we were, you know, we forgot about it or whatever. Um, our logic was that the building was in such a state uh, that regardless of what we discovered in the inspection, didn't really matter because we knew that we were going to be ripping out 
almost everything that the inspection might flag to begin with, A, and B, the price at which we bought it, uh, it was pretty clear that the owner was not going to, you know, entertain any sort of negotiation based on the state of the building or whatever else. So, you know, if we're, we're gutting everything anyways, and the owner's not going to change their price based on um, whatever we find, you know, the only reason to do an inspection, I guess, would be either for our personal curiosity, or if there was some big ticket item that would just completely torpedo the entire purchase. We wouldn't even bother doing it. But between the two of us and our partner, Pat, Pat Fazano, who is another co-owner of the building, we felt confident enough that there wasn't an item that would completely say, okay, we're not going to buy the building at all. Uh, and, uh, and we would kind of discover everything that we needed to fix in the course of, of our renovations. Okay. So post closing, I guess it's, it's a fair time to now dive into what some of those realizations were. Um, I have a list right here of 15 to 20 things um, ranging from demolition and clean out to water intrusion issues to replacing windows and doors and mechanical systems, um, the logistics. So uh, I guess where I would start is sequentially um, kind of thinking about how we're approaching the renovation and for us, step one, as as John alluded to, given the state of the building when we got in there, was demo and cleanup. Um, there was obviously a lot of work to do within the building, but because of the amount of stuff that was in the building itself, there was really no use in starting any work until we had a blank slate. Uh, and you know, obviously, that this is this mirrors strongly or closely what we do in a lot of our residential projects. Um, Often step one is demo and demo and cleanup, but it's magnified by a factor of 10 or 20 because of the size of the building. So I think we're for, for context, I guess let's set the stage, the building itself, 48 units. Um, they, I think it's a 12 story building, um, seven or eight stories of residential units. Uh, there's a rooftop, level or a, a penthouse level that is primarily common space or amenity space uh, with one kind of presidential suite. Uh, at one point, there was a, an indoor pool up there, which we have since removed, which could be another topic of conversation. Um, so that's at seven floors uh, or seven or eight floors of units, one floor of penthouse amenity space. And then on the bottom of the building or at the base of the building, we have three floors of a parking garage. Uh, and on one of those floors is the lobby and entryway. So we're going to a 12 story building. I think the residential square footage amounts to about 30,000 plus maybe another 15,000 square feet or so of garage space, common space. So it's a large building and for a building of that size to feel cluttered and cramped because of all the stuff in there gives you a sense of how much stuff there was to remove. So I don't know what we ended up with, but it was probably dozens of dumpsters, dozens of dumpsters. We got some of which were 40, uh, the largest dumpsters we've ever seen, like a, a pickup, uh, a, a tractor trailer size dumpster. I didn't even know that there were yeah. 100 yard dumpsters, but we probably went through, I want to say at least four of those. Right. Um, Plus 30 and 40 yard containers right. that were coming, being filled up within a day and then being dropped back off as soon as possible. So one logistical challenge, as Ryan mentioned, given just the size of the building is that, you know, typically in our, in our renovations, if we're demoing something, we can either you know, walk it out of the first floor and put it into the dumpster, or if it's on the second floor, throw it out of a window into the dumpster. Um, you know, at, at times we've used trash chutes that help with that. But in this case, because the building is, you know, the height of the building, is, I don't know what the actual height of the building is, but you know, hundreds of feet, you would think that the idea of throwing stuff out of a window onto the dumpsters below would not work. And in fact, it probably doesn't work. Although I believe that that is what ultimately happened in a certain, in various cases. We also uh, had a lift. There was a lift and a crane that was used to bring some equipment up to the top floor that 
I think simultaneously was used to bring certain things down that right. there was we, not another way to we get We had down. no elevator. We have elevators in the building, but they're not functional. So, and they're still not functional. So when we started demo, you know, it was very clear that anything that went up or, up or down either had to go through the staircase or through this lift that we ultimately used. Uh, I think it was 135 or 150 foot right. articulating lift. And what is the, what was the price of that lift? $7,000 a week or something? $7,000 like a week. Yeah, that's just for an just for a thing to lift people and stuff up and down. I think it's a, rated for 1,000 pounds. So uh, if you can imagine, you know, I never had to use a lift really ever at any of our projects. I think at one project we used a lift to just get drywall, you know, into the second floor of a building or something like that, which was, um, is not uncommon in residential development, but this is a whole different magnitude um, where it, I, I, so the, the total dumpster costs, I don't even want to think about them, but I mean, they're, they're tens probably of, tens in of the tens of thousands. Yeah. yeah. Plus, and yeah. That, that, that doesn't include labor. Right. So demo and cleanup was a huge undertaking, but it was necessary. Um, I think that, that that's still, frankly, ongoing in some respects, um, although more detail-oriented now than, than it was at the beginning. Um, but that brings us to step two, which has been this kind of ongoing challenge of getting getting the building weather tight and getting the mechanical systems in order um, so that we can begin doing afterwards so that we can beginning begin doing the work on the actual units themselves. So the phase that we're in right now consists of several different components. Uh, one is addressing some of the water intrusion issues we talked about before, which is primarily a byproduct of a bad roof or several bad roofs because of the nature of the building issues surrounding windows and doors, essentially anywhere where there is a penetration into the exterior of the building. Um, and those windows and doors are of many different styles and varieties. Uh, some of which are, you know, stock kind of Anderson stock, uh, like an Anderson replacement window, um, that you would see in a residential home, like a, a slider or a casement window. In other cases, they are, I don't know if they're custom or semi-custom, but they are certainly not widely available, um, like large glass. I think some of them are even like not non-rectangular yeah. shapes. Floor to ceiling, um, windows, right. all sorts of stuff. Right. So getting those, getting those ironed out is a, is a separate, separate issue from just, you know, a, a standard window replacement. Um, and then beyond the water intrusion issues and some of those exterior concerns, um, on top of that, we also painted the building. Um, but on top of all of that, there, there are all the mechanical systems that serve a building of this size. So there are all the things that you're used to in a residential home, heating, cooling, plumbing, electrical. Um, those are in some, in some respects, very similar to what you're used to and what we're used to in other respects, they are very different. Uh, and then there are other variables that we are not necessarily used to, um, things like passenger elevators, car elevators, ventilation systems for common areas, um, fire, fire alarm systems, fire sprinkler systems. Oh, that's when I mean, we have a three story parking garage. Um, yeah, I, there I are think... ventil uh, ventilation systems. I think I said that <laughs> but there are, you know, bringing fresh air into the building and kind of keep and removing st st uh, stale air. There's a backup generator I think, yeah. fueled by oil. Diesel, I think. Diesel. Yeah. So all of, all of the sorts of mechanicals that we have never really encountered in anything that we own. So getting all of those things online has been has been a process. Um, one challenge is that, or one additional challenge is that many of the contractors that we typically would rely on do not work with this type of equipment or do not have the manpower to handle. Uh, a project of the scope, so they're yeah. they're unwilling to even take a look at it or service it, even if they have the wherewithal to do so. Yeah, I think you know one. Just just to to drill down on the mechanical systems in particular, because I think when I walked into the building the first time and was looking around at you know how the building works. I would say almost everything that I saw I had never really seen before. Um, I mean. Uh, I think Ryan and I have a, a lot of experience at this point renovating existing buildings and are familiar with, you know, hot water heaters and electrical systems and um, HVAC systems and even to some extent fire systems. But 
this building has kind of everything that you might assume a build a commercial building would have. So, for example, um, the the water system, right? The, how how does water get into the building? Well, you could imagine that because it's a forty eight unit building uh, across tens of thousands of square feet, you know, just the diameter of the water line coming into the building is going to be a lot larger than your normal building, and that is true. But one thing I didn't really think about, and I guess is true of a lot of buildings, is that the the water pressure coming in from the city is not sufficient to supply water to the upper levels of the building. So there is a a pump system uh, set up in a room, you know, like a pump room that basically takes the water coming in from the city and then pumps it up so that there's sufficient water pressure up to the top of the building. Of course, that system was not working and actually had been subverted at some point by some previous owner. So I'm not sure entirely how the upper floors of the building were getting water, even if we did have water service, which we don't. But there's that. There's the equivalent thing for the fire suppression system. Um, and these are not, you know, small pumps. It's not like a like a transfer pump that you'd use to like a sump pump or something like that. These are like industrial commercial pumps. That's just for the water supply system. We go to the and the fire suppression system. If we go to the the electrical system, you know, again, Ryan and I are familiar with there being a panel, electrical panel, maybe 200 amp panel with sub panels. In this building, there's an entire room full of electrical switches, huge panels, um, there's a, an entire panel devoted just to the elevator system. There's a panel devoted to switching between the generator and the non, you know, the, the normal electrical systems, um, massive circuits, um, switches, all sorts of stuff that I've never, I, you could imagine that they exist in large buildings, but I've never seen them before. And then on the HVAC system, you know, again, Ryan and I are familiar with, Many different types of ways to heat and cool houses, mini splits, uh, central air, forced heating, hydronic, you know, water, water powered, steam powered heating systems, whatever you want to call it. This building has, uh, a, a water, a, a system where water is circulated and that water is heated or cooled. And the cooling system is this chiller, you know, makeup, located, located which is on the roof from the eighties, the heating system is not completely dissimilar, but massive, massive boilers, you know, a million BTUs type stuff, um, that heat the whole place. So that system is not working, hasn't worked for many years. No one services it anymore because it's from the eighties. So you look in and you're trying to think like, well, how does this building even work? You know, like what are the even components of the building that go into like functioning and pretty much every system, the way that I look at it is like I've I really have no idea. I've never seen this type of thing before. I don't know if you yeah, felt that and, way. Yeah, totally. And, and I think that is emblematic of this phase of the process. Once we get through this phase where the building is watertight, all of the core mechanical systems work. At that point, it's really just a matter of doing forty-eight single unit renovations, which is something that I think we are very familiar with and very right. comfortable with. But this process, I think, we are going to be caught in for quite some time. Um, yeah. Let me just touch on one other thing, sure. um, which is the elevator system. Yeah. So, uh, or do you two want to talk about, the, yeah, two separate, elevators. two separate elevators. So there's an ele- a passenger elevator, two elevator shafts, and then there's a car elevator, which is a, an hyd- a hydraulic elevator. Um, so again, I, well, we've never encountered elevators in any of our projects. I've conceivably, encountered residential elevators like in my life, like I've been in people's homes or whatever that have a residential elevator, but this is a commercial elevator system. And so when we bought the building, we were told that one of the elevator shafts was nearly complete, kind of like could, could be made to work. And the other elevator shaft had not, nothing had been done with it. So there's the elevator, there's an elevator mechanical room, uh, that is, you know, at the top of the building and in because there are two separate elevator shafts, there's sort of two separate systems. There's one system that was new with kind of like, you know, shall we say computers or like the, the you know, actual real technology in it. And there's another system that looks like um, something out of the 1950s, although I'm sure it was out of the 1980s, but has lots of plugs and sort of switches and kind of like, looks like the what you'd find in like a mad scientist's lab, um, I guess in some way to control the other elevator shaft. One of the, the pulley systems, the one that hasn't been replaced is very old. And the one that is replaced looks 
very new, although I was shocked to determine to find that your elevator is pulled by like a couple of cables. Right. <laughs> like a, like a, the whole elevator is like three steel cables or something like that, which is shocking to me. But um, so, you know, I, I, what's the dollar amount that, that we paid to for these elevator systems to... I want to say one quarter million dollars is a number that's in my mind. I I think that is, I think that's maybe, or maybe it's 250 or 300 to finish getting, or to get the one elevator that was already replaced operational plus replacing the other elevator car and equipment. Yeah, I don't know if we're replacing the car. I think we're replacing everything but the car, I want to say. Okay. Yeah, the car itself, I think, is going to remain. But and, then, and then the car elevator is a separate The car elevator is beast. a completely separate beast, yeah. We're not even approaching that right now for right. various reasons that we can get to. But a- after seeing how these elevators work, we finally got, we, you know, we had the elevator company come and they opened up the elevator. They actually got the elevators working and, and one elevator working. I've never seen it function. But opening it up, I remember the first time I saw it open, and, you know, there's like water leaking into the shaft because the roof is leaking all sorts of craziness i walked in and the elevator car is there and the, the elevator guy you know otis elevator kind of walks into the shaft and it's like okay and i'm like oh my god like i'm not gonna walk into the elevator now like I, like you know that's insane you know like what if it you know what are the safety you know it just i don't know i have like a different opinion on elevators after seeing the, the mechanics of it one cool thing that we learned after the fact or well after purchasing the building was each elevator car has a rear wall of glass and that glass faces uh, faces the, I guess the side of the building adjacent to the boardwalk or, or I guess facing the ocean. So when you're in the elevator, as you're going up and down the building, you get, you get little glimpses of the ocean, which is pretty cool. And I, I think at one point the building went by windows on the water, windows on the water. Yeah. And I, I suppose that that's why there's some amazing murals in the elevator shaft, yeah. uh, that are like straight from 1983. Yeah. So you can kind of see what the Atlantic city skyline looked like 40 years ago. Not, not to be confused with George Orwell's 1984. That's correct. They're that dis- George Orwell? they're Yeah. They're very dissimilar from that. Yep. They're not, a, they don't just, dis- well, I mean, in some ways Atlantic city is a dystopic wasteland. <laughs> so I guess that's has some similarities, but uh, no, I mean, it's not anymore. Maybe in the eighties. Um, right. So I, I didn't want to sidetrack, but the, the elevator is like a whole, right. I mean, we could do an entire podcast episode on elevators. Maybe we should have point. Otis on. Yeah. I don't want to pay. I can't pay their hourly rate to, to get on the podcast. Free advertising. <laughs> All right. So I think that about sums up the mechanical components. As John said, regarding the elevators, we could do a deep dive into each one of these systems and could talk about it for hours and hours. And every time we are exposed to it, we learn something new. Um, but that's the the sort of like phase two that we're in right now. Um, I don't even know. What's your, in your mind, what's the timeline for getting these operational, getting these systems operational? You know, I think the goal with the mechanical systems is to have some sort of idea of what we're doing by uh, by the next week or two. Uh, we're the the decision point that we're at. So the the we have a guy named John um, who I I just obviously don't like at all because he's the same name as I do, and therefore it creates confusion when people talk about John. <laughs> but in any case, uh, I never met him. I'm sure he's a nice guy. Um, we have John. He is a guy that has done work on the building in the past um, and is very familiar with the mechanical systems there. So we're kind of relying on him to um, to tell us what to do. But the I, I think the order of operations, if you will, as Ryan was alluding to, is this: there's there's demo, which I think we're you know maybe. 80 to 90% done with. We're certainly done with a lot of the big ticket items like the pool, a lot of the mechanical equipment that was useless, um, furniture, furniture, all that sort of stuff. So there's that. I think step two is ensuring the building is watertight. And we have made some progress towards that. We've identified some issues on the roof. We've painted the exterior, um, which seems to be effective in preventing water from kind of blowing in from the side of the building. But there are things still to address, like, as Brian mentioned, the penetrations on the roof, um, windows, doors. doors, Right. Um, Step three uh, is going to be to get some type of heat working in the building because we're at a point right now, it's December in New Jersey, it's getting cold. January, February, March are going to be very cold, you know, below freezing temperature. So if we don't have heat, we can't really do anything else. We can't expose, you know, we can't do any construction work. Obviously, we can't get water in the building because we'd be worried about pipes freezing. We really can do nothing. So getting that 
figured out is I think the next biggest step. And we're the decision point is, are we going to use the existing system um, or are we going to do an entirely different system to uh, do heating and cooling? So I think Ryan and I went to the opinion that we're probably going to try to use the existing system. The people that we've been talking to recently um, have been thinking that we want to we might, it might be more effective to replace the system entirely. Um, so I believe that decision will be made in the next week or two. And that will, I think, inform how everything else goes. So like if it's a new system, but the new system takes two or three months to install, then really nothing is going to happen until that system gets in. If we're re- re- using the existing system and that can be made operational, at least for heating purposes in like a couple weeks, then that's going to really accelerate the process of us being able to do work in the building. Um, once that is done, I think, uh, to Ryan's point, it's just a matter of doing, not just, but it becomes a matter of doing 48 plus, you know, 10,000 square feet of common space of renovations, which is the most similar thing, <clears throat> I should say, which is the most similar thing to what we've done in the past. Um, oh, and also making sure the elevator works. So the elevator has to work because right. there's no conceivably humanly possible way that we're going to be walking up and down. We or our contractors are going to be walking up and down, you know, 12 flights of stairs to work in the penthouse or whatever. We need to have the elevator operational for that. With materials. <laughs> With materials, yeah. It's a whole other thing about, you know, again, the challenges of a big building even a simple question like, okay, well, how am I going to get drywall into the building? You know, I was talking with, uh, with Pat about this, um, earlier this week, and you could possibly fit a couple of sheets of drywall into these passenger elevators, you know, um, or you could use a lift to get drywall into the top of the building, but then that requires taking out windows and doors and whatever else. And where we can most easily put the lift, the windows are kind of right in front of hallways. So then you're trying to manipulate, you know, the, the window to get the um, the sheetrock in. You could get a larger lift um, or whatever to maybe put on the top floor and then bring it down within the larger lift. You know, right now I said that the lift is rated for a thousand pounds, which is maybe like, I don't know, 12 sheets of drywall or something like that. If you wanted to put like 50 sheets of drywall, that lift itself is like 50 grand or a hundred grand. There's all these issues where it's like, oh my gosh, you know, how, I'm going to spend a hundred thousand dollars just to get drywall up into the building. Like that's insane. I'll just pay somebody to carry it up the stairs, all sorts of stuff like that. So the, those are kind of the, the, the issues, like it's, it's 48 renovations, but it's 48 renovations at, you know, 10 stories above the ground. So how does that work? You know? Right. Okay. So I, I guess let's, let's, pivot a little bit and talk about some of the opportunities here. Um, I feel like we've talked a lot about the issues and it might leave people with the feeling that we're not excited about this project, which I would say is I'm certainly excited. not the case. I'm excited. Yeah. So, I, I mean, there are some kind of practical reasons why we're excited about this, but I think just as a concept, this has been particularly interesting to us because it's an opportunity for us to scale up a lot of what we've already been doing. Um, we've obviously been operating a number of short-term rentals for a while, whether this is a hotel or a building that is operating quote unquote short-term rentals is kind of semantics. It, it It's going to be operationally very similar to what we were already doing, but it affords us certain opportunities because we have 48 units under one roof. Um, I think we have a whole bunch of common space, not to distract you, but that the, the difference between like a hotel and like, I, that's a whole episode right there. Yeah. Like <laughs> the hotel, is it a short term rental? Is it a boutique hotel? Like that's, yeah, we can, we can, we can delve into that because that, that kind of informs some of our thinking about what we're going to be doing next, but that's not this episode. So, so yeah, there, there's a lot to be excited about. Um, I guess I'll start with something that I'm particularly excited about that I think we're just kind of laying the groundwork for now, probably a few months too late, but the idea of kind of treating this as like a, a in the vein of a boutique hotel and coming up with a concept that we can employ or that can inform our strategy with everything that we do within the building. Um, I think we are, we have our designer working up a few concepts right now. Um, and maybe by the time this is released, we'll have some that we can share. But I think that that is particularly exciting to me because the last thing that I want to do is to create another you know, 48 more units in a city with 17, no, is it 17,000 hotel rooms? Something like that. I don't know why that number is in my my head, but in a city with thousands and thousands of hotel rooms, the last thing I want to do is to create 
50 more units that are just a carbon copy of whatever the number is of those that that already exist. Uh, I think the opportunity for us is to create something that is that is differentiated, you know, still appealing enough that at any given point in time there are going to be 50 people coming to the city who'd be interested in staying there. Um so you know, maybe not, maybe we're not going as niche as like a Star Wars themed hotel, but sorry, we're, we're not. <laughs> I triggered John. Oh, I didn't know that was not on the um, table. But yeah, I, I think there's there's so much opportunity to do some cool stuff there. Um, there's within the units themselves, there's some cool things we can do from a design standpoint. But beyond that, we have you know something like ten thousand square feet of common space as well that's going to have amenities um, that can tie into the theme. So I don't know exactly which angle we're going to take with that, but I'm excited to see that come together and to, to exercise or uh, leverage some of our creative juices that totally lay yeah. dormant for too much of our day. Totally. I, I, I think that that's one of the most exciting things about it. Um, you know, one of the challenges that we face is that again, unlike a, you know, residential home renovation where sort of everything uh, is at play. In this case, we're pretty constricted by the current layout of the building. I mean, I suppose it's possible we could rip out every single wall inside the building and reroute every single uh, electrical cable and wire and, and whatever. And that's, you know, what we would do in a residential building if we're doing a gut renovation. But in this case, just given the layout of the building, the building is, you know, it's a concrete you know, steel framed. I assume it's steel and concrete. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that before and didn't say it because I wasn't sure if it's concrete and steel or just, con- I can't imagine that it's concrete alone. Concrete. Yeah. 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 So it's concrete and steel. I assume steel. The only, yeah. I've never seen steel in there, which is the only reason I didn't say it, but I've got to imagine that it's both. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for example, we're not going to be able to like, change the ceiling height or something like that in any of the the floors I mean, obviously if we did in one floor we'd have to change it in every floor but you know the 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 floors are poured concrete so that's not going to happen so you know we're, we're kind of constrained by the height of each floor which is something like eight feet or whatever which is not you know i guess is sufficient for normal living but it's kind of like not not my preference i will say it feels it feels larger in some of the rooms where we have floor-to-ceiling windows right right um we're probably not going to end up changing the location of the kitchens and the bathrooms just again, because we, we, the, the number of mechanical systems that kind of rely on the fact that the building, that the, the, the units are the way they are is a lot. I mean, we'd have to reroute things like vent pipes and, uh, gutters and the roof and drains and all sorts of stuff. It's it just, it's, it's a mat. It's an even more massive undertaking than what we want to do. Yeah. So there's a, again, in a residential house, in a residential home, that is still a consideration, but to reroute, to reroute like a, a, an exhaust pipe or a vent pipe or the domestic plumbing across two or three floors is much different than doing it across 12. So I, I think anything that requires that is probably going to be a non-starter in this building. Yeah, we have 48 kitchens. We have more than 48 bathrooms. I'm not sure how I many. Mean, technically more than 48 kitchens too. Isn't there one in the common area? Oh, okay. Or two common For, areas? 49 or yeah. 50 kitchens. <laughs> Maybe uh, there's also a unit in there that has two kitchens because why not? Yeah, why not? <laughs> uh, at least 48. Well, there was that, there was the... Uh, the elevator pump room oh. on the ground floor that also had been converted to a kitchen for some reason. Right, of course. To serve, yeah. to, to serve food, I guess. Right, to serve food for elevator operators, um, <laughs> I guess. Uh, so, yeah, at least 48 kitchens, at least 48 bathrooms. Um, so, again, you know, our our budget, you know, we, we haven't really talked numbers here, but our, our budget for the, the, the entire everything, you know, all renovations of the building is somewhere around the $3 million mark. Um, it's probably going to be more like $4 million b- before all is said and done, but that's what we're shooting for. So if you, you know, if you just think of the numbers that we just talked about kind of offhandedly, where we're talking about 250 K just for the elevators, um, tens of thousands of dollars in dumpsters. Um, and then obviously you can imagine the labor for that. Um, thousands of dollars, seven thousand dollars per week for the lift that we've now had for a month. Um, if you think about, well, you know, how much does it cost in my house to redo the HVAC system, you know, for my single family home, and then think about an HVAC system for a forty-eight unit building, just that's going to be probably the largest single ticket item that we 
that we pay for, maybe the entire renovation. And then you think, okay, well, how much does it cost to even aesthetically renovate my, my, you know, two bedroom, one bathroom, uh, house or unit or whatever. We'll multiply that times 48. That's kind of where we're at with, with the building. So we can do a lot, but we're not, we're not so free from a design perspective to say like, okay, well actually it's not going to be 48 units. It's going to be 10 units and you know, whatever, like we're not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, Just to speak to the numbers a little bit. In my head, I'm quite confident it's going to be more than $3 million. Um, I've been thinking $4 million and would not be surprised if it hits five. But having said that, if we think it's $3 million and the logic is sort of we're going to spend about half of that on general building-related work like clean-out and demo and the building mechanicals, that leaves us with about a, half a, a million and a half dollars for the actual unit interiors. Uh, at 48 units, it's about $30,000 a unit, which for units that are, I would say on average, maybe 700 square feet. Right. Um, that's not, that doesn't seem infeasible. So, um, you know, this is like what John and I always talk about it, or what John and I always talk about. It's in construction. It's so easy to spend money. Um, there, there are plenty of people who'd come in there. They look at each unit and they would, they would ballpark $60,000 a unit or $100,000 a unit. Um, there are people who would look at the common areas and they would, you know, look at the, the roof or, or the, the penthouse alone. And they would say, this is a million dollars al- like alone just to do the, you know, 5,000 square feet or whatever it is up there. And, and that's e- not easily justifiable. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that's not, that's not to say that they're wrong, but, working backwards and just sort of like thinking about the underlying fundamentals of this. If the reality is that this building, when it's all said and done is going to be an $8 million building or a $10 million building or a $12 million building, there's only a certain cost basis that we can support. And the biggest variable driving what that cost basis is going to be is our construction costs. So we kind of have to work backwards and, and you know, there's there's a certain line in the sand that we just cannot cross uh, as far as what makes sense before we're just pissing away money. I think the opportunity cost for a building of this size of not having of not having those units operational um, is a lot higher than any other normal building, just because our cost of purchase was so much higher, uh, and things like carrying costs of this building are just of a different magnitude than anything else. So if you think of the taxes on this building. You know, each unit is assessed individually, but I think each unit is assessed, you know, we're paying, call it at least three grand per unit, two grand, three grand per unit, something like that times 48. So just the tax burden of the building alone is very high. So the longer that we can't get it operational, the the more painful it becomes. Uh, thankfully, we bought this building in cash, but there will be a point in which we need to get construction financing. Um, and that becomes you know, in the current economic environment, just the interest rates on that alone are going to be staggering if we're talking about millions of dollars of money in a, in a construction loan. Right. So, uh, I don't really know how we got off on that tangent, but that is the story of my life. <laughs> um, I, a few other things that are, I don't know, I don't want to say these are necessarily exciting to me, but I think they are practical considerations that work to our benefit here. Um, there's certainly some economies of scale. I think just from a design standpoint, as I said before, I, I don't want to. I don't want to do forty-eight renovations that are just cheap cookie cutter, same thing in every unit. Um, so that's going to probably dampen some of the benefit of our economies of scale because we're going to be doing different things uh, across the building. But there is certainly something to be said for the amount of work that any given subcon- subcontractor would have at this building, um, and that has been. I think that's a dynamic at play with almost everything that we do. Um, a lot of our guys that we work with now, we've worked with many times before and we are treated well and get reasonable pricing from them generally on the basis of that volume. Uh, and that's taken a fair amount of time to foster. Um, but you know, it's taken the form of five, 10, 20 different small projects uh, conversely here, when someone walks into a building of this size, the, the volume of work is right there in front of them. So if they're, if they're bidding on flooring for every one of the unit interiors and it amounts to 
25,000 square feet of flooring or 30,000 square feet of flooring, they're going to bid that much more competitively than if we bring them to a single job site where they'd be doing 1,500 square feet of flooring, which would occupy them for two days and then they'd be on to the next project. If there's something that's going to keep them occupied for the next, you know, for four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, they're going to be much more likely to discount what they would think of as their daily rate. And we hopefully bear the benefit of that. Yeah. Um, I guess you haven't really seen that so far, but I would hope that that's the case. I mean, that this is the sort of thing. It's where, a nice theory. Yeah. This is the sort of <laughs> thing where it's like, you know, if someone wants to have full-time work for the next six months, nine months, even a year doing blank, they probably could, you know, one of our, one of our contractors or guys that we have working there who started doing demo, we sort of told him like, you might as well move right in because you're going to be here for quite a while. Um, yeah, I think one, one, one way in which this worked probably to our disadvantage or did not, we did not reap the benefit of was, is some of these like heating issues that we've talked about because unfortunately the time during which we've been trying to address this is the busiest time of year for any heating contractor. Right. So, you know, had we, had we approached these guys in the spring or in the summer, I think we probably would have had much more luck finding someone who was maybe not desperate for work, but right. much more excited to have this volume of work. Yeah. So I, I think that that for me dovetails into, uh, I guess a question that you asked Ryan about timing, which is our thoughts on when we're going to get any portion of the building habitable. Um, I think that the, pie in the sky goal has always been to try to get some parts of the building functional by the summer of next year. Um, is that still your assumption, Ryan? It's not my assumption. It's my hope, hope, your dream. dream. <laughs> yeah. I think practically speaking, there's no way that the entire building is going to be like that. There's every no unit way. in the building is going to be inhabitable by then. I think the, the sort of moonshot goal is that by that point, all of the mechanical systems are at least operational, maybe not operating, maybe not like completely devoid of work, but they're operational enough to serve whatever units are online in the building. And then perhaps optimistically, we've been able to get one or two floors worth of apartments online. Um, I think even that, given the, given the roadmap in front of us with respect to the mechanicals is probably not realistic at this point. Um, but it's, a uh, it's a dream, something to shoot for. I, I think realistically, if I don't know what the, the sort of like rolling deliveries of these units is staggered, but uh, is staggered across the summer, fall and winter, uh, heading into 2024. And we are fully operational by the spring of 2024. I think that'd be a huge win. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, I'm still holding out the possibility that at least one or two floors or maybe like the penthouse or something like that, uh, the penthouse floor level could be operational for the summer. Um, I don't think that that's an insane goal to shoot for, but I think it will depend a lot on what we just talked about and what Ryan just mentioned, which are the mechanical systems. So obviously if we have to redo all of the HVAC and we can't get that done until April, then we're not even going to be able to start on interior renovations until that's done. Let me put it to you this way. Uh, I think of the variables that I'm looking at right now, we have like things to address. We have water intrusion. We have um, all these different mechanical systems. So the heating, the cooling, hot water, the water pump. Um, we have the passenger elevators, the building ventilation system, the fire alarm system, the sprinkler system. I think those are the main concerns that uh, the main considerations that I would think of as, yeah, I, I, I'm just going to say that, but I feel like that's not an absolute must have. It may be a must be have wrong. because there might be a requirement to have a that's generator valid. for the elevator. So. Okay. So let's, let's yeah. call that, let's call that 10 essential considerations before the building could be occupied in any capacity. Of those, what do you think are the most likely culprits if we're not able to, to reach our goal? Well, I think that the elevator system will be done, at least an elevator shaft will be operational, I want to say within the next month, right. something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's already operational. It's already operational. Operational just, for us. Right. Signed over to us. Um, I think that the fire systems are 
not too far from being operational because some work was done on that by the prior owner. And, and to be clear, of, you mean the fire alarm system and the sprinkler system? Right, both of those systems. Okay. Yeah, so, so those are 10. obviously you know interconnected. Right. Um, I think that the uh, the the water system was that one of your distinct ones? Yeah, there's like the domestic water. Domestic water, um, right? Well, there's the the domestic hot water and then domestic water by virtue of the pump. I have those as two right. Separate. So the domestic. Uh, domestic water by virtue of the pump, I think is a solvable problem. I think we have a path towards that solution. So I think that that, that can happen. Um, domestic hot water is really a matter of th- there were hot water units per, you know, per, per unit. unit. So that's pretty easy. Uh, if we need to make a unit operational, we just put in hot water heaters. Right. Um, I think the biggest culprit in my mind is going to be the heating and cooling system, the HVAC system. Um, because right now the system, we don't know if it's worthwhile to save or if it's workable. We don't know if we need to replace the whole thing. Um, I really have no idea. Uh, I think that no one really has an idea. And I also don't know what the dollar amount to that is. I don't know if the dollar amount for, for fixing the existing system is like 50 grand or 500 grand. I don't know if a new system is going to be you know, it's certainly gonna be more than 50 grand, but I don't know if it, that's, you know, 300, 500, 700. I have no idea. Yeah. Well, one thing that I think is going to be a, a key factor in all of this, and I don't know where this is going to, but this is going to bite us, but I think most of these things that we just discussed require some fairly specialized equipment. And I think in most cases, it's not a manner of the work itself taking so long. It's a manner of when certain equipment can be sourced and delivered on site and and then there's kind of like a sequencing element to this too like we can't do x until we do y or we can't do y until we do x um so i I think that that's going to be a contributor to the timeline and it's going to bite us somewhere i'm just not exactly sure where um some of these other things are also just not as simple as ordering x part um for example with the elevators there has to be, you know, they have to put together an entire schematic, an entire like system drawing and plan. They have to engineer, uh, they have to kind of sketch out what each of the components um, looks like and how they all fit together. And then only once that is done, reviewed, signed off on, can they actually order the relevant parts. And the relevant parts may be, you know, they may be made from scratch or they may be custom ordered from another country. It could take two, three months just to get the part in. And then it's a matter of scheduling the the technicians to get out there and to actually perform the work, which is in a lot of cases, the lesser, the less in, intense battle that we're fighting. So I think that's probably my biggest concern. I think the elevator, I think we're far enough along with that, that I don't see that being a huge deterrent to getting something online. I think with respect to the heating and cooling, that is probably going to be the the most sensitive area to yeah i'm a little bit worried about water penetration as well just from the perspective of you know the roof itself i think is a solvable problem i think it's a problem that we've maybe already solved but then the roof penetrations you know you're talking about ventilations um, air ventilation things conduits all the sort of stuff that pops up under the roof needs to be replaced and then i think that's going to be an ongoing saga but i don't necessarily see that like that to me that's not as that that doesn't there aren't as many subsequent tasks keyed to that work and the actual um either like procurement or execution of that work i don't think takes quite as long i just think it's going to be a situation where like as we go floor by floor or like by face of the building or however we choose to approach it we're going to constantly be unlocking new things or yeah uncovering uh, new things and and they're going to be kind of addressed as as they're identified I agree with that. I, I, I'm more worried about the things like doors, exterior doors and windows. Right. Um, because I think that that at this point is the main source of water penetration. There's right. one side of the building in particular where the top floor, the penthouse uh, floor, several windows are actively leaking. And then that leak travels down to the floor below, the floor below, the floor below. And obviously, if those windows are leaking, probably all the other windows, because they're all installed at the same time, with the same person are also leaking. So I, I, that's been another lesson, too, where the, you know, we've obviously dealt with leaks in other houses, and it's generally like pretty straightforward to identify and troubleshoot them. But there are some factors here that I would say are less typical. Um, yeah. The building, first and foremost, is just super tall compared to everything else. So you're dealing with like, essentially like unobstructed winds 
a hundred feet in the air, not broken by, you know, your neighboring buildings. On top of that, we are literally located steps from the ocean. So there's, it's, it's direct wind. It's hard on the building. yeah, Yeah. It's direct wind and it's salt air and it's taking that like direct beating directly off the ocean. Right. Um, so I, I think that that's like, like water penetration is like a, a big issue no matter where it is, but it's especially concerning when you're in a storm prone area, you're constantly facing high winds and you're contending with like harsh elements like the saltwater air. Yeah. And I think another unique thing about this building, which is not unique necessarily for the size, but probably unique because of it, the fact that it's in Atlantic City, is that the, when the building was built, you know, I would say the quality of construction was variable. You know, I think some things were done well and some things were not done well. I think one of the things that wasn't done particularly well were things like window installation uh, or uh, deck installation, you know, the pitching of decks and uh, all that sort of stuff. And then that's been compounded by the fact that the building has been it's in Atlantic City, so the building has been not in great financial straits, I think, ever. Right. So all of the repairs that were done to fix those things were done very badly. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's so much... I, I don't as much question the quality of the original work as I do the fact that, A, it's been a long time, and B, it hasn't been maintained really in any way over the last... Certainly over the last decade, probably yeah. for a period of time. It wasn't, think, adi- it wasn't adequately main- maintained. I think you can argue that. that looking at the windows, which obviously are the original windows, those many of them were not installed probably correctly or at least ideally. Um, that That's, I think, the assessment that we've come to by looking at them. I mean, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe there are factors that are that I'm not aware of. They've also been there for 40 years at this yeah, point. But, so but, I would say any, anyone would assume that they'd be they would have been replaced or at least yeah, sure. addressed in some I think manner. To your question before about the system, you know, what, what my concern is is that, you know, say we've identified three or four windows and doors that are leaking on the top floor that are causing a lot of water penetration. Well, obviously because those have failed, all the other windows and doors have failed. And so there's an argument that you could say is to, to make is to say like, well, why even bother beginning an interior renovations until you've already replaced everything that you know to be leaking, which is essentially every window and every right. exterior door. And, you know, to, to talk about ordering, and we've said before about the windows, you know, some of those windows are not really replaceable without creating a custom window and just say, I want to, I don't know how many windows are in the building, but, you know, call it, I don't know, hundreds of windows to order hundreds of windows. I mean, we ordered 20 windows for a project that took uh, three, three months, months to come in. So to order, you know, call it 300 windows. I mean, that's insane. You know? Right. So yeah, there are obviously a lot of variables. I think in summary, how would you summarize your overall feelings on the project? I'm very excited about the the ultimate outcome. I think I'm increasingly excited the more that I think about it from a design-focused perspective right. and as a boutique hotel and all of that. That makes me like really excited. Uh, I have been excited to learn about the building and the process yep. like that. I think we're entering a period of kind of like uh, stress and anxiety where we're going to be coming up against like problems that we're not sure how to solve. You say that as if we already haven't been in a period of stress and, stress <laughs> well, and anxiety. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're going to be encountering problems that we, we're not sure how to solve. We're going to be encountering like some money issues. I think we're going to be up against the wall and say like, well, you know, we really need to figure out the financing for all of that. We've been leaning on our partner, Pat, for a lot of the work in that realm. And so I have, I have some confidence that that'll all work out. It, it's nice, I think, to have a partner like Pat who you know, obviously has a lot of experience, not necessarily in buildings like this, but has more experience than us, has a lot of contacts for financing that we can use and whatever else. That kind of makes it a little bit more fun, I guess. He's also extremely solution-oriented. I don't think I've ever heard him raise a problem without simultaneously bringing up a solution or a potential solution. That's a great point, yeah. And I think that that makes... I personally will dwell on an issue for far too long and just think about it and try to try to like fully understand it before I can start brain brainstorming solutions, particularly if it's a, if it's a new problem that we right. haven't encountered before. And with him, I think a, because of his experience and B, because of just the way that he is wired, he has a deep well of knowledge to pull from to come up with potential solutions. But even when he doesn't, he's just always thinking about how he can fix a problem. Right. And that's, that's a refreshing thing to be surrounded by. Right. So it, I think, I think on the, by and large, my feeling is excitement and fun. Uh, I would think I would feel less excited and more stressed if we didn't have someone like Pat, because I think in the back of my mind, I'd be thinking like money, 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 like, you know, how, like, is it all going to make sense? Uh, you know, and like, you know, how are we going to find the right people? You know, I would just be, 
I'd be more stressed. Yeah. Yeah. What are I, your thoughts? I agree with all of that. I certainly have some concerns about the the fundamental economics of the project, um, but it's certainly a long bet and it's a long bet that I'm excited to take. The second thing I will say is that the more time I spend there, the more and the more I pair that, you know, boots on the ground experience with your thoughts on or your point before about kind of thinking about this as like a boutique hotel design focused and trying to create the best, most exciting product that we can. That is really, that is really something that is increasingly fueling me because at the end of the day, it's a, it's a really cool asset. And I think even 12 months ago, certainly 24 or 36 months ago, if you had said that this would be the type of thing that we were working on, a 48-unit condo building directly on the boardwalk, 12 stories above the Atlantic Ocean with views of the water from almost every unit, I'd be like, wow, that's that's an incredible opportunity. Where yeah. do I sign up? And we are in that position right now. And I think it's easy to get overwhelmed when we're caught in the weeds of how are we going to deal with issue A, issue B, issue C. Um, but when you really take a step back and think about the the grander vision of what what it is we have in front of us, it's it's pretty damn cool. Yeah. And I think that alludes to to a future episode that we need to do is like a look back on our 2022 uh, accomplishments and failures, uh, mistakes and uh, learnings, shall we say, um, which I'm excited to do because I think we've really done a lot this year. And uh, this was not on our docket January of this year. Right. There's still a, a month left. And I think a fair amount of things are going to happen in that month. So maybe it's a little bit premature to do that <laughs> uh, uh, so far. But uh, yeah, so I, I think our, our plan going forward is we're going to be doing podcast episodes that focus on this building as we progress along. This is the kickoff of that series, but we'll do one, you know, maybe in a couple months kind of updating where we're at. Just, um, just an idea. I don't know if this would be interesting, but I know we have a lot of listeners in Atlantic City. Maybe at some point we could do like a kind of organized field trip to the building and do a little walkthrough. That would be great. Preview the project in, in person for anyone who's interested. Yeah. If you've listened this long in the episode and you are in Atlantic City or you come to Atlantic City, uh, let us know if you'd like to see the building and maybe we'll coordinate a day to do a field trip. Um, obviously, after signing the liability waivers and wearing hard hats. and That's <laughs> 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 no, not that bad. Uh, but yeah, let, let us know. Um, we'd be happy to, to organize it. I mean, that just goes to the general statement too. If anyone listening wants to kind of you know, tour our, our projects, uh, in a general sense, I think Ryan and I are always happy to, um, to, to be available and kind of show off a little bit. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but we, we will follow up on this specific building. Um, so yeah, please stay and, tuned for that. Yeah. And if you have any thoughts, you know, especially for those who are familiar with Atlantic city and familiar with this building, uh, this particular building, if you have any thoughts on what you think might be cool from an amenity standpoint or any design thoughts, um, it's still, in a lot of ways, a bank's blank slate, I guess, minus the exterior paint color, which... Uh, the ship has sailed. <laughs> yeah, on which the ship has sailed. Um, but yeah, we are all ears. I can always be reached via email at ryan at libertyhudson.com. And I am John, J-O-H-N, at libertyhudson.com. And as always, really appreciate everyone for listening and watching on YouTube, tuning in. If you are listening to us or watching us on a platform that allows you to subscribe or follow us or like this uh, podcast, please do that. It really helps us a lot to know who's listening and to know what people like. But until next time, we will be back, hopefully not in five months, but sooner <laughs> than that with another episode. And uh, really appreciate your listening. I can tell you that for sure. We'll be back with another episode because in about 30 seconds, we'll be recording it. Absolutely. Well, then maybe we might delay you know, releasing it for five months just to get <laughs> a little, little tickle, you know, a little wait. <laughs> Anyways, thanks everyone for listening and we will see you guys soon. Don't forget to visit us at BrickXBrickRealEstate.com for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and BrickXBrickRealEstate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick Podcast.